let's talk about role models, shall we? Guys, especially, um, you may have remembered this advertising campaign. How many of you remember the advertising campaign, I want to be like Mike? Anybody? A few of you? Thank you, ladies. Saw that hand. It was a Gatorade commercial, originally aired in 1992. After seeing an early cut of the commercial just featuring highlights of Jordan dunking, the ad exec um, was disappointed, and he came up using with an idea of using the song I Want to Be Like You from the 1967 film The Jungle Book, but Disney wanted more money than Gatorade was willing to pony up. So the advertising exec wrote the lyrics himself. I want to be like Mike, inspired by the Jungle Book song, put it to a tune by a couple of composers. And they look back on it now and said, if we had actually done the licensing with Disney to use the Jungle Book song, it wouldn't have had near the impact that it had. The song, Sometimes I Dream That He Is Me, You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream, I move, I dream, I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Oh, if I could be like Mike. It's this vision that every young boy has and every young girl that they could be an athlete, that they could be a star, that they could be someone. There's a natural need for role models, right? And, and Paul knows that having older men and older women in the faith to look up to as role models is important. We're not fully grown yet. Um, some people are further down the road than we are. And so that's why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that the primary job, as Kevin just prayed, the primary job of the equippers, of those investing, of those training, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We are to pour in to other people so that they can be equippers of other people. Here's where we get off track. Um, The only one that we would ultimately aspire to be like is Jesus. This is not a dare to be a Daniel sermon, and I don't care what his diet was like. I think it's weird. This is not to say grow up to be a Barnabas or grow up to be um, a Paul or a Peter or a John. The only one we ought to be emulating is Jesus. But inherently in that statement, there's some complications, right? We can see glimpses of Jesus in other people, but other people are never our standard. Okay? When Jesus is the bar... When Jesus is the standard, it feels kind of like this. Imagine someone who's in their late 30s, has never um, run intentionally in their life except to get away from something, sitting on their couch in, let's say, I don't know, the colony, Texas. This is a hypothetical. What are you laughing at? And they see Olympic trials happening on the television. And they tell their wife, who's a four foot eleven and three quarters on a good day brunette, completely hypothetically, 
I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to work really hard, and I'm going to run an Olympic marathon. After their wife gets off the floor from gut-hurting laughter, they would say probably that feels like you aren't thinking clearly about what you're saying. Because if this late 30s person who likes tacos more than running um, were to get off their couch and say, start training, do you know what they would be? They'd be in better shape. Do you know what they would not be? They would not be an Olympic athlete. When Jesus becomes the only standard that we see, for some of us, that's really intimidating. What would Jesus do? Probably the exact opposite of what I would do. What more do you want out of me? Paul knew that what his church needed beyond aspiring, pointing their eyes firmly on Jesus, is the church needed some living, breathing, embodied examples of what it means to faithfully follow Christ. What it looks like in the day in and the day out. What it looks like to react to stress, to to react to anxiety, to react to persecution, to react to false teachers. Paul knew that these people weren't the ultimate answer. Jesus is the ultimate answer. But what they needed, nevertheless, was people that could be pictures of parts of Jesus. Models to see how to deal with life when life comes at you really fast. So I want us to look at the three examples that Paul gives us in this text. And I want to see the similarities that we see to Jesus in the three pictures in the text. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I'll invite you to stand as we read together. Hear God's word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may, may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard 
that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Beloved in Christ, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, allow us to see above all Jesus, as those on the road said, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Would we hear life-giving words today? For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Okay, this is what we're going to encounter this morning. Three pictures, three pictures of Christ likeness demonstrated in different ways. We're going to see it first in Paul, then in Timothy, then in Paul's messenger Epaphroditus. He's going to lay out plans for a visit soon. And so Paul is blending his circumstances in Rome with their circumstances in Philippi. Okay. So what are the examples we're going to see? We're going to see Christ likeness in submission modeled in Paul. We're going to see selflessness modeled in Timothy And we're going to see suffering modeled in Epaphroditus. Now, some of you might be arguing with me a bit on where exactly we see Paul in in the text, right? If you have your own Bible that may have a heading in there, and if it has a heading in there, it probably says something like this, Timothy and Epaphroditus. It does not talk about Paul. So where do I see, where do I see submission in Paul. Well, I want you to look with me at, um, I want you to look at verse 19. What Paul says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy soon. And then down in verse 24, look at what he says in verse 24. In verse 24, he says, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. What you're seeing here. Paul modeling is submission, right? Paul is modeling submission. These are not empty religious words. These are not words that are the pro forma expected words that pastors and apostles and super Christians say when they want to make things sound just right and just so, right? This is Paul declaring strong, defiant Rock-solid words that show the foundation and controlling vision for his life. Whatever Paul hopes for, right? Whatever he hopes for, these things are tempered because they are ultimately given to him by the Lord. Whatever Paul plans, 
by the Lord. Whatever he desires, given to him by the Lord. Whatever he expects, all these things are in the Lord. What is, what is Paul demonstrating? What aspect of Christ are we seeing here in Paul? We're seeing in Paul modeled the very submissive servant heart that was a part of the life and the love of Jesus. Now look, let's do real talk for just a second, shall we? I know that all of us, at some point or another, because we have wanted to appear as good, trusting Christians, we will, of course, say things like, if God allows, if God permits, if God is so gracious. That can come from one of several places, right? Sometimes that can come from a place where we don't actually believe that God hears our prayers, that we're just cogs in a machine. Remember I said that sometimes when you believe in the promises and the sovereignty and the absolute control of God, one of two things can happen. It can kill your zeal for prayer and kill your longing for the lost because you view the world just like the eventualities of a Rube Goldberg machine where the model or the marble was set into motion and eventually scrambled eggs get made on the other side. And there's no stopping it. There's just being along for the ride. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. But you and I get there sometimes, don't we? Or perhaps sometimes we'll say, um, I really hope that God will permit and whatever fill-in-the-blank thing it is that we're really hoping for. So there are two ways this can go wrong, right? One way is to sit back in a, um, in a place of passiveness and be like, well, whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. It is what it is. Well, that's, we don't see that in the Bible, do we? The Bible is full of God's people actively engaged in their lives and in their world, making plans, aspiring to great things, praying bold prayers. The other thing that you don't see happening in the scriptures is you don't see um, this cavalier attitude of taking all of our wants and wishes and ideals to Jesus and saying, here, God, here's your plans. I went ahead and wrote them out for you. Right? We don't see either one of those things happening. Paul was always praying and hoping and trusting and strategizing always on the move, always on message. It was the king and his kingdom that motivated Paul's heart's desire. And he demonstrated that in the way that his life was lived. And, and it wasn't as if Paul didn't have clear sights on what he desired. Okay, it's kind of, I need you to hear this. It's kind of like parenting, right? When I give my kids choices, let's be clear. It's not like there's a right choice and a wrong choice. Okay? If I tell the four-year-old that here are the two outfits you can choose from, I don't care which outfit he chooses. Both of them are fine. I just want him to make the choice. But many of us approach God with there's only one right answer. If God's will is this, I'm elated. If God's will is this, I'm crushed. What's the difference? For Paul... Whether he lived or he died, he was satisfied. Why? Because he loved 
and he submitted to and he trusted his king. If Paul if if God permitted Paul to come from Rome to Philippi, it was great. It was good. If Paul didn't per permit him to come, it was great and it was good. Why? Because there's nothing that can separate him from the love of the king and nothing that can foil the plans of the king. And even if that meant the kingdom expanse happened at Paul's expense, he could still be satisfied because he was in the firm embrace of the king. How many of us can say that if God interrupts our plans and brings a wrinkle, that we're just as happy? I told you we were doing real talk. I'm going to tell you right now, I whine and scream just like a four-year-old I know. We get disappointed. We get crestfallen. We feel that God has forgotten us. We feel that God has abandoned us. We feel that uh, we question our faith. We question God's love for us because we feel that if God really loved me, he would have given, what I, given me what I wanted all along. Rather than being able to say, because I am loved by God, I will gladly accept whatever choice he makes for me because I know he really loves me. And friends, listen, you and I need these types of people in our lives. We need those older fathers and older mothers in the faith that we can call when we are legitimately disappointed, when life has come up and just been, and the rug has been yanked out from underneath us, and we can process with a godly brother or a godly sister who can, who can hear us, who can listen to us, who can point us to Jesus. And ask us hard questions because they love us. See, I don't think that, as you're going to hear me say over and over, I don't think that Paul was just naturally born this way. I think that Jesus had to do a supernatural work in him to make him this way. And I bet Paul had his bad days too. Because he wasn't Jesus. He longed for Jesus. Now before Paul can arrive in Philippi, we know that they can expect two other servants to come first, right? Timothy and Epaphroditus. So let's look at, um, let's look at how we see Jesus in Timothy. One of the things that we see in this text as it relates to Timothy, is selflessness. Selflessness. This is a willingness to say, my life for yours. This is a willingness to say that whatever it costs me to bless you, I want to do that. Okay? Selfishness is to say, your life for mine. Whatever it costs you to make me feel better about me, well, that should just be the price of admission to have me as your friend. Right? That's the difference between the two. 
Paul's intent in verse 19 and again in verse 23 is to dispatch Timothy soon. Soon when? Soon when he sees how it goes with me. In other words, as soon as Paul's fate is determined, Timothy will come personally and bring news. Now, the purpose of sending both Timothy and Epaphroditus is not simply to send face-to-face messengers about Paul himself, but also to put in their midst living, breathing examples of maturity and Christ-likeness for their good. Look at verse 20. He says in verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be what? Genuinely, genuinely concerned about your welfare. There is a pastoral sensitivity with him, a genuine desire to make sure that they are shepherded well by not only speaking of Jesus, but also by living out the ramifications of a life saturated by the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The selflessness of Timothy is a manifestation of Christ himself in his uh, genuine care and, and, and much more on that later, how, how Christ controls even our, our worries. In verse 20, Paul writes that Timothy is concerned for them. But this is a, this is a sanitized version of the Greek word. Well, there, are several, there are several delightfully sanitized Greek words in Philippians, by the way. Um, I'll teach you a Greek cuss word later. It's late, not today, later. The ki- no, I see the kids just got all paying attention all of a sudden. That got awkward. Um, David at metrocrestchurch.org. Just it's fine. Mondays are great. Um, the Greek word at play here, when he says he's concerned for them, it actually means he's anxious for them. But the, when the word, um, when the word, because the same word that means concern means anxious, when it's meant in a negative light, it gets translated anxiety or fear or um or something like that. But when it's meant to uh, convey a positive aspect, it's translated as being concerned, right? And there's a, a right and a wrong way to feel deep angst for those who you love. There is a rightly ordered way where you are, are not um, checking out from them. You're not shutting down when they talk. You move in, um, even though sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's painful and sometimes it's, it hurts. Um, you move towards them. You engage with them. Uh, you long with them. You weep with them. You laugh with them. Um, when you're gone and, and you don't hear from them, uh, your love for them brings up a genuine yearning for their whereabouts and their well-being, Right? Um, All of us should have people in our lives that if they haven't heard from us in a day or so, they start to get genuinely concerned. They start to send out search parties. They start to put your your picture up in in post offices. Some of you may already have your picture in a post office. That's a... Do they still do that? No? No, fine. It's on websites now. Anyway, um, the wrong way to go about this is where concern leads to codependency, right? Where there's no way to tell where you end and the other person begins. That's the wrong way to go about genuine concern. Paul is sending Timothy because he has a healthy yearning for their well-being. Timothy hears of their sufferings and his heart aches. He hears of their, their rivalries that have broken out and his heart aches. Look, it's, it's kind of why um, 
they say that pastoring is a is a kind of an all in um, vocation, and it's true. Like I can't go on vacation and stop thinking about you, which is weird. I know that I can leave here and you can easily stop thinking about me, and that's cool too. Um, but I can go on vacation. And I'm still praying for you, and I'm still I'm still worried about you, and I'm still um, I'm still longing for God to do things in your life because we're we're a family together, and this is what love does. So Paul is sending Timothy, and he goes on and he elaborates about the selflessness of Timothy that sets him apart from so many others. Look at verses 20 through 22. In verses 20 through 22, he says he has no one like him. Why? Because, because others, they, they all seek their own interests. Now, he's not throwing good-natured people under the bus. Remember back in chapter 1, there were the folks that would preach the gospel, but they were doing so to spite Paul? He's in jail. They're going out preaching the gospel. They're seeing the kingdom break in. And Paul's like, hey, they're preaching Jesus, so cool. But when it comes to sending people to his church, he doesn't feel like he can send anyone else because he has no one else like Timothy, okay? Those people were already living. Um, those people that were, that were in the kind of the mean, nasty place there at chapter 1, they were already at the place where Paul was afraid the Philippian church was going to one day get to, where they were closed in on themselves. They couldn't see anything else. They were, they were collapsing in on themselves. So how would Timothy help them? He would help them because in Paul's very concern for them, they would see an antidote, a mirror opposite of the toxicity that was beginning to infect their fellowship. They would see a man that seeks not his own interest, but the interest of Jesus. What effectively is happening here is Paul is saying that to them, here is a living, breathing model of the very thing I've been exhorting you towards in this entire letter. This genuine concern, this others-oriented love, this heart-stretching, kingdom-expanding love, the love that held Jesus to the cross in selfless concern for himself and selfish concern for you and I is the love that you will see in Timothy. Have this mind among yourselves. Paul is expecting Timothy to make a round trip, verse 19, and bring news back to him. The near thousand-mile trip without Uber, without airplanes, very dangerous seas, lots of different things to navigate and get through. This is a very dangerous trip, and yet and it, it demonstrates the commitment that was Timothy's and Paul's for this church. It demonstrates the commitment and cost that was being espoused to us to model as well. It is this type of heart-stretching love that causes us to take great risks for the sake of other people, to say hard things and to do hard things, to forsake our own comfort, to forsake our own safety, to risk our very foundation of stability because we are willing to move towards someone in redemptive love no matter the cost to us. We are more willing to see things from others' perspectives rather than just defending our own. We are putting our resources less towards our own investments and more towards where the greater needs are. Now that sounds like a great idea for the super-Christian the ones with books and blogs and radio spots. But what about you and I? Well, a couple things. One, 
Paul is sending Timothy to model this precisely because it is this that he desires to see in all Christians. Timothy wasn't going to do a breakout seminar with the super Christians. Secondly, we're not naturally wired this way. But this is what the Spirit of God can cultivate in us. Timothy had to grow in grace. He had to be challenged and discipled. I have to grow in grace. You have to grow in grace. Fear must never rule the day for your heart. It must be faith. This is learned. This is not innate. But that is the expectation, not the exception. Do you understand? Yes? Okay. One last one. Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus is the courier, right? He's the one who will hand deliver the letter as soon as the ink dries. He's a member of the Philippian church. As Paul says in verse 25, your messenger and minister to my need. We're going to learn later that the messenger and minister hand delivered the church's contribution to Paul's expense for house arrest, right? Because this wasn't a government subsidized deal. If Paul was under house arrest, someone had to be funding that. And so the church contributed, gave towards it, and Epaphroditus hand-delivered that contribution. And he stayed to help Paul, but something alarming had happened. Epaphroditus had fallen gravely ill, so much so that he was at death's door, verse 27. And word had reached back to Philippi, verse 26. But miraculously, God, in verse 27, Paul says, spared him, healed him, and this brought relief to both he and Paul. Paul wants to get him back to the church as soon as possible so that they could be relieved at the sight of him, verse 28. So the courier will go both with the letter and with the update as to Paul's condition. He will bring them joy, but he will bring them something else as well. He will be a living, breathing role model to them in another aspect of Christ's likeness that they need to see modeled in front of them. Because in Paul, we've already seen submission. And in Timothy, we've already seen selflessness. But we are going to see in Epaphroditus, one of their own, his willingness to suffer and sacrifice his own body for their sakes. Look at the, look at the titles that Paul gives him in this text. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, He was the church's messenger and minister. When this man arrived in Rome, it was as if the whole church arrived with him. When he arrives in Philippi, they will see Paul's love for them as well as Paul's near um, laser-focused mindset of the mission that is before them. But I want you to consider his name, Epaphroditus. That doesn't sound very Jewish. In fact, in fact, likely it means that he was pagan at birth. And his parents invoked over him the protection of the goddess Aphrodite. But then, (laughs) but then, the grace of God broke into his life. He was adopted into a new family, invested in him now with a new identity. If 
Timothy was a son to Paul. Epaphroditus was in Christ like Paul's brother. He was also a fellow worker. He was a fellow soldier. And Paul knows that this calling as a soldier comes with pain and scars. And for Paul... Epaphroditus is a soldier in arms, a co-laborer. But what ennobled them and energized them was not the thrill of battle or the need for conflict, but the love of the king. Because the king had first fought for them. The king went to battle, shed his own blood, and died to conquer sin and death and the devil himself. Because of what the king had done for Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus now does gladly for the king. And in addition to all these things, Epaphroditus was both a messenger and a minister. He brought a priestly role from the, uh, from the people to Paul. And now Paul sends him, risking his very life for the cause and work of Christ, back to them. He was willing to suffer and die just because Jesus had suffered and died for him. His illness was the price he paid for being in Christ's service. And he did so willingly. He risked falling ill again to go home, and he was willing and glad to do so. His yearning to be with his church is a model of Jesus. It is a glimmer and glimpse of Jesus' love for us. What should this church do? Look at what it says in verse 30. Verse 29, honor such men. Honor him. Now, why would Paul have to say that? Well, one reason may be because the church had already fallen in to such blinded self-centeredness that they would feel envy over Paul's elevating of Epaphroditus. And they had to be reminded, look at what he did. Honor him appropriately. Or maybe it was just more simple than that. Maybe they just needed to be reminded, as we all do every now and again, to smile and rejoice because it is Christ who loved us and Christ who died for us and Christ who will come again for us. And even though the world is complex and our hearts are crazy and they want what they shouldn't want and do what they shouldn't do, it is nevertheless still certain of this fact that Jesus has overcome our hearts, that Jesus has overcome the world. And in these moments like today, when we break the fast and together keep the feast, it is a reminder once more to smile. Because God hasn't forgotten us. His love is demonstrated in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let me ask you this as we close. Um, Jesus is our standard. But maybe some of us are like that guy on the couch in the colony and need some more accessible standards between Olympic athlete and never run in their life. Who do you have in your life? Who do you have that's running with you? That's not just an acquaintance, but a co-laborer. Someone who knows you, who can ask you hard questions, who can call you out when you're back doing your crazy shenanigans again.
Who's modeling for you submission like Paul and selflessness like Timothy and sacrificial servanthood like Epaphroditus? What will it take for you to risk, to take the first steps, not just towards community and your peers, but towards those fathers and mothers in the faith that can help you grow to be more like Jesus? Jesus is the point, but he hasn't called us to be little islands unto ourselves. He's called us to be in community. And the community isn't just to say we can have small talk and casseroles. Community is there so that we can see all around us living, breathing examples of Jesus.